Well, good morning, Oakwood family. So glad that you're here with us this morning. We're starting a new series today, as you probably figured out from that uh, video on the book of 1 Peter. So if you have your Bible, I invite you to turn there to 1 Peter. Now, if your Bible begins to look like mine, like this, with the curled pages to, to 1 Peter and stuff, that's okay, because that means you're reading it a lot in that section, okay? So I've been reading it and studying it, and I can't get my pages to lay down like they used to, but that's okay. Uh, that might happen to your Bible over the next few weeks, and that, that's, a, that's a good thing as we study this together. Um, as always, you're invited to follow along in the app. If you uh, don't have a, a paper Bible with you, uh, you can follow along in the app on your phone or on your tablet. Just download the Oakwood app, go to Sermon Notes, and all the notes and all the scriptures and everything will be right there for you. As we begin this new series, I, I just want to proclaim that uh, we are, are um, reading this and studying this, and this, this really applies a lot to today. I think so many times we read scripture, we say, well, that was, you know, a couple thousand years ago. That is hard to relate. And, and I think that through this series and as we read this book, you're going to be like, wow, that was, you know, that was like written for us. You know, there's so many times that I think that we read scripture and we, we don't think of it that way. We think that's from long ago and it's not really uh, for us or to us or it's hard to apply to our context today. And, and man, the more I read scripture, the more I'm like, wow, that was exactly for today. I know a bunch of us are reading the Bible uh, together this year. I think we're over 80 now, uh, have signed up for that uh, Bible reading plan. I just want to say and encourage you, appreciate you doing that. I love the discussion on there. And isn't it amazing? We're in the life of Joseph right now in Genesis, uh, like in the 40s, I think we're 45 to 47 today, something like that. And it's amazing how we're reading this and then in the comment section how we're talking about how this applies today. Isn't it amazing? Look what God did. And, and man, the richness of the word and the richness of reading the Bible and then to be able to read, you know, the Bible through like in the book of Genesis. We're almost done with Genesis, about to go to Exodus. And then reading something like 1 Peter is just amazing how God works through it, okay? I'm telling you what, the Bible changes lives. The Word of God is living and active, and it changes lives. And if you don't like your situation, your circumstances, or yourself, read the Bible. Because the Bible has this way of reading you, and the Word is going to change your life forever. So uh, let, let's begin. Let's talk a little bit about the background of 1 Peter before we get into our text this morning. First of all, it's written by a guy named Peter. He'll identify that right there in the first verse. And, and Peter is the disciple Peter, also known as the apostle Peter. This is the Peter that preaches the sermon in Acts chapter 2, the, the, basically the first sermon of the church, the birth of the church that day, that Peter. This is the same Peter that, that walked with Christ. He was in the inner circle with Christ, with the disciples that were close to him, being Peter, James, and John, that Peter. This same Peter is the same guy that was like, I will die with you. He told Christ the night before he was betrayed, he's like, I will die with you. I will do anything. I'm, I'm with you to the end. Even if, even if it means death, I'm going to die with you. And, and Jesus knew Peter. And Jesus is like, you know, Peter, you're going to actually deny me three times. And, and you know the story. He's in the courtyard, and some little servant girl comes up, and aren't you Galilean, and weren't you with Jesus that's over there being, you know, in the trials, and he's going to be flogged. And he's like, I don't even know the man. In fact, he he basically cusses. The, the Bible says that he took on oaths and, and said, oh, you know, I certainly don't know, you know, don't know Jesus. And, and I mean, this guy just seemed to be all over the map. You know, you're like, 
Peter is great. He loves Jesus, so devoted. Uh, Peter walks away from Jesus. Peter loves Jesus. I'm going to die with you. I'll go with you to the very I deny you in public to everyone. You know, and, and then if you know how the story ends kind of with his time with Jesus while Jesus was still on the earth, it's at the end of John's gospel. And, and it, it, it's just a section of scripture where it seems like like for every time he denied Christ, Jesus had to restore him. He, he said, "Hey, hey, P- hey, Peter, do you do you love do you love me?" And he's like, "Yes, you know I love you." He's like, "Feed my sheep." And hey, Peter, do you love me? And he's like, "Yes, I love you." He's like, "Feed my lambs." And, and so Peter's not perfect, but Peter's awesome because God used him in a mighty way. That's the story of so many Christians in Scripture, and even today, it's not that the people are awesome or, or perfect; they're just saved. They have this great salvation. And God uses these people. The other thing that we need to understand is the setting. The setting of 1 Peter. This is a time when the Roman Empire ruled basically the world. They were the world's power. They they were the one that everyone in the world looked to them, was kind of jealous of them. They become pretty territorial. They've taken over a lot of territory. But they were strong. They were the nation that the world looked to. See, anything this sounds familiar, anything we can relate to today, okay? They had the world's strongest economy, the world's largest and most powerful military. Everyone in the world wanted to be sovereign under Roman Empire because then you had their military power backing you. Does this sound familiar to anybody? This mass of of territorialism caused some issues within the nation because the nation of, of Rome and the Roman Empire they were kind of having these problems because it became this melting pot. You had all these people groups from over here, all these people groups from over here, and they were having a hard time assimilating the values. You see, there were values that had brought them together and brought unity so that they could go and they could conquer and they could you know, be on conquest and they could become the strong and powerful nation. But then as that grew and as that became more diverse, it seemed like they had a hard time bringing it back together. Now the values were all over the place. Now you had these people want to do this thing and these people want to do this thing. And even inside the houses, the house of the Caesars and the rulers, they were even having division from within. And, and their government's model was all over the place and how they had set it up to govern the nation at this time was not the way they were doing it at this time. And, and so it's into this time period in the Roman Empire, though they're seen as the strength of the world, that Peter writes. Because in the middle of this mess is Christianity. Christianity had been spreading. The Apostle Paul and and, and, and Silas and, and, and Timothy and, and even Peter, they, they'd gone around on these missionary journeys, they'd gone into these cities and had, had made believers of Jesus Christ, disciples and followers of Jesus Christ. And, and, and keeping with the biblical uh, model, they would, they would appoint um, godly men, a plurality of godly men to lead God's church. And, 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 and these, these churches were popping up, and they were in the middle of this, and they kind of came under fire for their values. They kind of came under fire for their way of life. And as the Roman Empire continued to be very divisive in all of their ways, uh, now somehow Christianity became a target. And so when we read this book, we need to understand the context here is to some people who are going to suffer persecution, or who are probably already suffering some type of persecution for their faith and for their stand in Jesus Christ. And as the Roman Empire just had this tendency to drift into division, and to drift into this versus this, and these ideals, and these ideas, and these values, as they drifted more into selfishness and rampant paganism, 
As they became this nation that was divided, it was in the middle of all this, there were these Christians. And as the Roman Empire began this national compromise to try to bring the nation together, it became even more divided. And the persecution of the church that was standing for Christian values and standing for Christ's kingdom became a commonplace and became a target. Does this relate to anyone today? Could this maybe sound like, oh, that's kind of what's going on in the United States of America today. I mean, it, it, this kind of parallels our story. Some of the cries of that time as the Roman Empire was beginning to struggle. People were coming out and, you know, they, they were out and they were like, hey, we want justice. And the church and Christianity say, you want justice? Oh, we serve a God of justice. We, we serve the righteous judge. If you want justice, then you want Jesus. And they're like, no, we don't want Jesus. We want justice, but not Jesus. Well, we want this ideal that the Roman Empire was built upon, that all people are treated with respect. Oh, well, then you want Jesus. No, we don't want Jesus. We want generosity and benevolence. Well, then you would want Jesus. And no, we don't want Jesus. We want fairness and equality. Well, then you'd be like a kingdom citizen and you would want Jesus. No, we don't want Jesus. We want love and, and we want peace amongst the land and peace amongst the people. Well, then you would want the Prince of Peace. His name is Jesus. No, we don't want Jesus. We want to have hope. The hope that we'd had many years ago when we were unified as, as a nation in the Roman Empire. We, we want that again. And, and, oh, if you want hope, then you would want Jesus. No, we don't want Jesus. We want heaven, though. You would want Jesus. No. No, we don't want Jesus. And isn't it funny? Maybe it's not funny. That's not the right word. Maybe it's just sad. Because so much of what people longed for back then, and even today, is only provided in Christ Jesus. Christianity has the answer. And so the call to the people that, first Peter, that, that Peter is writing to in 1 Peter, the call even to us today is that we have to hang on to Jesus. We need to stand firm and fast in Jesus. We need to never let go of Jesus because we all know, really, truly, we are better off with Jesus. The purpose, I think, of the book is not actually found in the beginning. Many of the writings in the New Testament, you read the first few verses, you know, oh, they're writing for this. This one, it's actually found in the fifth chapter. So if you have your Bible, you might want to turn over. Uh, 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 12. So just a few verses from the very end of the book, he gives us the purpose in his writing. And this is what he says. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 12b, and anytime you see that, it just means the second half of the verse. It says this. He says, I have written to you briefly... And it's, just, it's a short little book, only five chapters. I've written to you briefly, encouraging you and testifying that this is the true grace of God. Stand fast in it. If you want to understand the overall purpose of Peter's writing here, he gives it to us right there. I've written to you briefly. I'm encouraging the Christians, and I'm testifying to them that this is the true grace of God. No matter what happens in the world, no matter what you're suffering through, no matter what's going on, it's the true grace of God. Stand fast in it. Hold on to your faith. Hold on to your foundation. Don't give up. Fight for it. Stay in the faith. Stay fast in it. The main purpose of 1 Peter is to comfort and to encourage the Christians who are being persecuted. 
or who are about to suffer persecution. That, that's the main purpose of it in, in its simplest form. And it was as if they felt like life as they knew it was changing. They'd, they'd kind of been you know, through this, and they felt like life was this way, and now it was changing. And even though the, the, the um, Christianity was you know, originally for the Jews, it had now spread to the Gentiles, it was even in the Roman Empire that it just felt like they were losing their way. They were losing their way of life. They didn't understand what was going on in the world, and it felt like it was just crumbling. It felt like it was completely falling apart. And the pressure was on. And the pressure was even on the church and even on the Christians. I mean, you think about it. How is Christianity going to even make it out of the first century unless there's some super dedicated Christians, like real Christians, like sacrificial type Christians who will walk the way of faith and pass it on to the next generation? Who will make disciples and pass it on to the next generation? Who will pass it on to the next generation, even into us today? Let's read this first part of our study in 1 Peter. 1 Peter chapter 1, beginning with verse 1, says this, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, so he identifies himself as the writer. Uh, right. Then he says, to God's elect, as God's chosen people, just like the chosen people of Israel, it's to God's chosen people. Exiles scattered through the provinces of Pontus and Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God, the Father, through the sanctifying work of the Spirit, to be obedient to Jesus Christ and sprinkled in his blood, grace and peace be yours in abundance. Now, these first few verses here, there's so much. We, I mean, we could just spend, spend just a week on this, but I just want to touch on these things. He says that you've been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God. And what he's referencing there is God knows whether you are going to be saved or not. He has that foreknowledge. He knows whether you're going to accept him or whether you're going to reject him. And, and, and if you accept him, it goes on. He says, the God, the Father, that through the sanctifying work of the Spirit, we've talked about that before. What is sanctification? It is the process of us becoming more like Jesus, becoming Christ-like in our, in our word, in our deed, in our actions, in our heart, in our love for one another. And so through the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit, because only the Holy Spirit can do it and be involved in that. And then it's interesting because he goes on even further. He says, to be obedient to Jesus Christ. To do what Jesus Christ asked us to do. We can actually be obedient. We can actually leave our life of sin. We can quit sinning. And we can go God's direction in life if we are in Christ Jesus. It's only possible because, because why? He gives it to us again. He says, sprinkled in his blood. It's only because of the sacrifice of Jesus, the forgiveness of sins, and the power of the resurrection that is the resurrection power that is in our lives today, giving us the ability to walk out our faith, to stand firm in our faith, and to walk out in obedience to Christ. And then he says, grace and peace be yours in abundance. He says that because they're going to need it. Verse 3, he says, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, because of God's great mercy, he has given us a new birth. We're going to talk about that in a minute. Into a living hope. It's not a dead hope. It's a living hope. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. The whole foundation of our faith in Christianity is Jesus' resurrection from the dead. Verse 4. And into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. It's talking about when Jesus returns in the last days. 
Verse 6, in all of this, you greatly rejoice. Though now, for a little while, you may have to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. He's speaking to the season of testing that we go through as Christians. Verse 7, these have come, why? So that the proven genuineness of your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Though you have not seen him with your eyes, you love him. And even though you do not see him now because he is away from us, you believe in him and are filled with what? Inexpressible and glorious joy. For you are receiving the end result of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who spoke of the grace that was come to you searched intently and with the greatest care, trying to find out the time and the circumstances to which the Spirit of Christ in them was pointing when he predicted the sufferings of the Messiah and the glories that would follow. Verse 12, it was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you, when they spoke of the things that have now been told you by those who have preached the gospel to you, by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Even the angels long to look into these things. Now that, that last little, little part there, and then you might have a little paragraph separating there in verse 10. What it's talking about there is talking about the prophets of old, the prophets of the, the Old Testament, all the prophets that we read um, around our Christmas series, the book of Isaiah, all of those prophets and those prophecies that were about the Messiah to come. They were trying to figure out the time and the circumstances of when Christ would, would come into the world the first time. And then for these people now, when Christ would return the second time. Because we see all throughout the New Testament, Jesus has died, he has risen, and he's gone to the Heavenly Father, and he says, hey, I'm coming back. I'm coming back physically in form a second time. And, and all throughout, I mean, you read the New Testament, and you, these people thought it was tomorrow. I mean, they thought Jesus would come, come back tonight for dinner. I mean, he could come back any time, and they were so ready. Even though he'd only been gone from them for a little bit, they were so ready for him to come back. Now, let me tell you what I think Peter's writing about here. What he's writing about is that the prophets of old saw that the Messiah was coming into the world. And so if we're looking off in the distance, it's like we see a hill. And on this hill, Jesus comes into the world. Then we see this other hill beyond that. And the next, the next hill was the cross of Calvary, Golgotha, the place of the skull. Because on that hill, he would give his life as a sacrifice. And then for the believers... There were contemporaries with Christ, his disciples and apostles, and those who, like us, have the New Testament and read the Holy Word, the divine Word of Scripture. We see beyond that that there's this second coming. And so it's like there's the birth, the coming of the Messiah. Then there's the death of the Messiah. Then there's the resurrection of the Messiah. And then there's the second coming of the Messiah. And what's interesting is these prophets thought they were prophesying for themselves in that season that you know, the Messiah would come tomorrow. Just like the apostles thought Jesus is coming back again tomorrow. And what it's saying here, it's interesting because in verse 12 it says, It was revealed to them, to the prophets, that they were not serving themselves but you. That what they were calling on with the Messiah and all they would see with the Messiah and the salvation that was coming, they were actually giving those prophecies not for themselves and not for their contemporaries. They were really giving those prophecies for this time and even for us. And then notice at the end of verse 12 what he says. He goes on and he says, um, When they spoke of these things to you, you have been told by those who have preached the gospel to you. 
by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, that, that these things are possible because faithful Christian men and women shared the gospel. And then we are waiting for him to come. And then it's interesting, I think he says, hey, even the angels don't know the timeline, didn't see this coming. I mean, this age that we're in, a lot of people call this the church age. They didn't see the church age. They didn't see this gap between the, the resurrection and Jesus' ascension to heaven and the second coming. They didn't see this gap that we're in right now. They didn't see the book of Acts coming. But they realize now that God, his desire and his heart and his great love is for all mankind, for all of his creation. He wants everyone to have the opportunity to hear the gospel and to respond. And Peter's giving this to them and imploring them and saying, hey, we need to be ready. Just like these prophets were looking to the future and telling everyone to be ready. Hey, we need to be ready and you need to be ready. So what are some practical applications from this text today? I want to share some thoughts with you. The first one is this. We need to focus on our living hope through all that life throws our way. We need to focus on a living hope, on our living hope, through all that life throws our way. Look what it says there in verse 3. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy he has given us what? New birth. Right? We are what? Born again Christians. Born again Christ followers. We have a rebirth. We have been reborn into what? Into a living hope that is Christ himself. He is our living hope. How? Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. When you read the New Testament and you read books like this by, by Peter, you read some of Paul's writings, they, have you ever noticed they're always talking about the resurrection? I think sometimes we lose the power of the resurrection. Resurrection power is incredible, that you can overcome death. Jesus exemplified that in miracles before, but then he actually exemplified that in himself and that he was crucified, a torturous death. No doubt when he was put in that tomb, he was dead and everybody knew it. And on the third day, he, through the resurrection power of God, he comes out of that grave. And it's amazing. And I think sometimes for some reason we're just like not just appreciative or in awe of that. Sometimes we just lose it a little bit. It gets lost in translation. Maybe we just read it so often or we know, hey, Easter's coming, right? Easter's coming in a couple months. We'll, we'll celebrate that again. Remember that as Christians, big deal. You know, this is a big deal. This is the big deal. We put our faith and our hope in a living hope, and his name is Jesus Christ. And the reason it's mentioned here and all throughout the Bible is because it's a big deal. If you have a loved one that you lost... And I'm not trying to make light of this this morning. Maybe it's your brother or sister. Maybe it's a spouse. Maybe you lost a child. Maybe it's your grandma or your grandpa. But if you have someone you really loved and really cared for and cherished, and they have passed away, and they could resurrect and come back to you, would that not be awesome? I mean, come on, folks. If we had someone that was dead and they actually came back to life, actually resurrected from the dead, you would be like, What? I mean, you would, you would be shocked, amazed, in awe, and you'd be like, what? It's supernatural, right? It's powerful. That's what Jesus did. I think sometimes we get, you know, a little numb to it or something. Don't, don't allow that to become norm for you. This is amazing. And that's what he's writing to him there in verse 3. Living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ makes the hope we have different than any other hope you can have in your life. Because every other hope you have in your life is dead hope. You hope in money, gone, dead. Money, money is not living. 
You want to put your hope in other religions, maybe. Oh, there's other religions in the world, and they're all, you know, people say sometimes like they're all smart or something. Oh, they're all going the same direction. No, they're not. Have you seen the other religions in the world? You ever seen people that are part of a cult? What do they have? What do they have? Let's be honest. A dead hope. They have a dead hope. Why? Because their leader is dead. Name them, you know, Gandhi, Muhammad, whatever, all the world religions. They, you can go to their tomb. You can go to their person, their, their religious leader, their respecter, their whatever. You go to them, and they have a grave, and they're still in there. Not ours. We have a living hope because we have true living resurrection power through the blood of Jesus Christ. And, and when you're looking at life and you're looking at some of the stuff these people are going to go through and some of the stuff that we're going through now, some of the stuff we may be going through, when the world around you seems like it's crumbling and you're like, wow, we've got a government now that want to make some mandates here. And, you know, I feel like my freedoms might be going away. And I, well, what's going to happen? You know, what, what about this? And, you know, and then the division that comes in the nation about morals and values. Well, you used to all value this, but not anymore. And, you know, I don't know about you. The longer I live, the more divided I feel like we are. I mean, you want to study history? Why do you study history? So you don't repeat it. Why does history keep repeating itself? Because man is sinful. It's like we can't learn from history. Study the Roman Empire. And then study the United States of America. And then realize, you know what? You better have a living hope. You better put your hope in something else. The government's not going to save you. The government program's not going to save you. Your money is not going to save you. There's nothing in this world that will save you except the living hope that is only through Jesus Christ. And when you compare that to the dead hope that every other religion offers and what the world and paganism offers, it's a dead hope. And he gives us this new birth and this inheritance to prove it to us in heaven. Look what it says in 3 and 4. He's given us this new birth and a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And what in verse 4? Into an inheritance. You get an inheritance when you're God's children, right? That can never perish, spoil, or fade. How is it never going to perish, spoil, or fade? This inheritance is kept for you in heaven. God's keeping it safe for you in heaven. It's a reminder as kingdom citizens and kingdom workers, we are not of this world. Second thing from this passage. Remember that we are shielded by God's power when we go through trials and testing. We are actually shielded by God's power. As children of God. If you have true, authentic faith, if you're really genuinely in the faith, then you have God's power shielding you. He becomes your shield. Where does he talk about? Let's look at verse 5. Who through faith, talking about believers and Christians, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. Whether it's us pass away or it's talking about the last time and that Jesus' return, whatever happens first, we have this hope. It's an inheritance that is kept for us in heaven, and we will prevail through it because we are shielded by God's power. Now, this isn't a new concept. You've heard that before. I mean, it's like in the Bible 170 times that God is our shield. A couple examples of that. Psalm chapter 7, verse 10. Psalm 7, verse 10 says this. My shield is the God most high who saves the upright in heart. He is our shield. He's our protection. He is our buffer. Another one from the book of Psalms. Psalm uh, thirty-three twenty says this. We wait and hope for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. 
And we read all throughout the Old Testament and even into the New Testament that God is our shield, that God's power is our shield. And sometimes when you feel beat down by the world, sometimes when you feel lost in the world, sometimes when you just feel like, I can't take anymore. And don't be surprised by that. Jesus told his disciples, in this world you will have trouble. You're going to have trouble in this world. If, if, we're, if things were perfect here, would you long for heaven? No. You'd think, oh, that's great here. It's like heaven on earth. You know, No. In this world, you will have trouble. But what did Jesus also say after that? He said, but take heart. Why? Because I have overcome the world. God is your shield. His power is your shield. And sometimes, as Christians, what we're actually called to do and need to do is we need to hunker down behind the shield. We are a people of faith in what? A dead hope? No, a living hope. And we need to be prepared. And sometimes when we feel like I can't take anymore, folks, it's because you're not putting up your shield. Put up your shield and let it extinguish the flaming arrows of the evil one against you. And it's God's power that does it. It's through the living hope, the powerful resurrection of the dead that Jesus gives us. Third thing this morning. The testing of, of your faith proves and develops much. The testing of your faith proves and develops much in your life. Now, I know that sounds extremely generic. I reworked that point like a hundred times. And I could spend like a week on it. Of what develops in us when we go through times of testing of our faith. Because it does. It, it, it does a whole bunch of things. I'm only going to give you a couple this morning. So don't think, well, that's an exhaustive list. This goes on and on and on and on what's developed. But I'm going, to give you, I'm going to give you kind of the big three. The first thing I want you to understand, though, is there is a testing. There's a time of trial that we go through. Look at verse 6. It says, in all of this that he's talking about, you greatly rejoice. Which that's weird, but we'll get to it in a minute, okay? When all these things happen to you and you're taking up God's shield and you're hunkering down and all these, uh, when all that Greatly rejoice. Most people don't greatly rejoice, right? But, but we will, and you'll understand in a minute. It says, though now, and it says, for what? For a little while, you may have to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. Now, for a little while, you may have to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. What's he talking about there? He's talking about a season that we go through as Christians, a season of testing. It's a season of trials. Sometimes it's, 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 it's a temptation that comes our way. But we go through this testing, this testing of our faith. And then look what it says in verse 7. These have come, these seasonal trials, for a little while all kinds of trials have come. These have come so that what? So that the proven genuineness of your faith, you're going to prove it because you're actually going to walk it out. What does James say? That faith without action is a dead faith. So when you actually have to hang on to your faith and you have to put it into action, then you actually have real faith then. And then look what he says there. He, he does this comparison to gold. He says, of greater worth than gold. Your faith is of greater worth than gold. You have to understand gold in this context, the, the, the most expensive thing and the most wonderful thing in all the world. You, did, you didn't want dollars back then. You wanted gold. And everything was gold, and, and everything was, you know, if you were in the kingdom of the Roman Empire, then, you know, we're going to build our palaces of gold. Everything's etched out in gold. And he says, rather, your, your faith is greater, of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire. And he's giving them a little foreshadowing here. He's saying, you're going to go through the fire. Hey, gold, which is so valuable, is refined by fire. But gold doesn't last forever. In fact, gold does not extinguish from this world. In fact, you can ruin gold. Even though it's refined by fire, even it goes through that refining process, 
It still perishes. Your faith is worth more than that. And then look at the next part. He says, and it may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Through your faith is revealed to other people. Isn't it amazing? The testing of your faith proves and develops much. First thing it does is it authenticates true faith. The testing and the trials you go through authenticates true faith. And that's what we're called to put it into action. That's why that faith is compared to genuine gold here. The second thing is, is that it gives you perseverance. It helps develop perseverance. When you go through times of trials and testing in your faith, it develops perseverance. And sometimes we don't like that, but we need that. Look what it says in the book of James. Let's go to the book of James. Right at the beginning of the book of James. James chapter 1, right after the intro. Hey, I'm James. I'm writing you this letter. This is what it says in verse 2. Okay, take this in. Consider it pure joy. Okay, we're going to have some Christian joy here. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters. So he's talking to the, to the believers, my brothers and sisters in Christ Jesus. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds. Well, Peter's writing about that here in chapter 1. When you go for a little while that you may have to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. Here we go over to James, and James is saying, consider it pure joy whenever you face trials of many kinds. Why? He says, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish, finish its work so that what? What's it going to produce? So that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. Perseverance. How are you going to get through what you're going through in life? And if you think, wow, I've already done my lesson in that now, we don't know. In this world, you will have trouble. There may be more trouble coming. Perseverance. The third thing, the testing of your faith proves and develops much is it proves and develops maturity. It authenticates true faith. It gives you perseverance and also develops a maturity in you. Some of those Christians that you look up to in the faith, you're like, man, I just, man, I want to be as deep as they are. I want to be as spiritual as they are. I want to be as close to Jesus as they are. When you're looking into that stuff and you're looking at the maturity, you're going to find out if you sit down and talk to them and hear their story, they've been through some things. They have been through some things in life. When it talks about trials there at the end of verse 6, all kinds of trials, I think those trials and, and, and this, this testing of the faith he's talking about really takes on two forms. I think it's trials and temptation. Trials you don't have anything to do with. Trials sometimes that you suffer through or go through, you didn't cause it. It wasn't because of, of something that you chose. It just came to you. Sometimes you're suffering through trials with other people. Sometimes you're suffering through trials just in life in this fallen world. But there's these trials that come. There's this series of, this, this season of testing is these trials. And it says of all kinds, of, it's all varieties. It's going to be physical trials and emotional trials and money trials and, and, and work-related trials and relational trials. And so all of these things, all mixed up and stripped together, are going to come to develop this perseverance with you and develop maturity in you. But then the second part is, is not just the trials, but I think the temptation. That sometimes the testing of our faith requires temptation. 
And the Bible has a lot to say about temptation. A lot of people say, oh, you know, I gave in to that sin because I was so overwhelmed by the temptation. You know, the temptation was just too much to bear. No, that, that, that goes against Scripture. Look what it says, 1 Corinthians 10, 13, written by the Apostle Paul to the Christians in Corinth. 1 Corinthians 10, 13 says, no temptation has overtaken you, Christians, except what is common to mankind. In other words, if you're human, you're going to be tempted. Whether you're in the faith or out of the faith, you're going to be tempted. No temptation has come to you. No, no temptation has overtaken you except what is common to mankind. Now look what else it says. And God is faithful. Why? Because he's God and he's awesome. Okay, God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. He's never going to put you in a station where, man, I just had to give in. No. No. Your will chooses to give in. God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. He's not going to force you to sin, to do what he hates. He says, but when you are tempted... There's even more. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can endure it. Not only is he going to tempt you, allow you to be tempted beyond this, what you can bear, but he's always going to provide a way out. He's always going to offer you an alternative, especially for those of us who are in Christ Jesus, who have put our faith and hope in the what? The living hope, and we have the resurrection power of the dead working in us and God is our what he is our shield the shield the power of God is our shield to be overcomers in this life and in this world and you get to the end of this and you read and you understand what these trials okay sometimes it's just trials I don't have anything to do with it just circumstantial things that happen to me in life that that test me and sometimes the testing is is a temptation but God is our shield in the, in the trials, God is our temptation. He, he, in, in the temptation, he is our way out. God is our way out in, tempta in temptation. And, and when Christ returns, and until he returns, Christians are going to go through these times, through these times of testing, of trials and temptation. And sometimes I think that's very purposeful because I, I wonder sometimes, if a faith cannot be tested, can a faith be trusted? James would say, no, a faith not put into action is a dead faith. Not really faith at all. But if you go and you have your faith tested and you hang on to the living hope, you hang on to your faithfulness in him, a faith that's tested can be trusted. And God is sovereign over all and we are his children. And if you read the end of this book, you know that in the end, those who are faithful those who are in Christ Jesus, we win. God wins. And because we are his children, remember he's talking about the inheritance? You give your inheritance to who? Your kids. The inheritance that is saved for you, that, that will not pass away because it's in heaven. As God's children, we will prevail into the end. And then what's amazing through this and it's in verse 6 and 8, and it just jumped out at me, was our demeanor through it all. Through the times of trial and suffering and persecution, through times of pain in this life, and seasons of suffering and seasons of temptation, where Jesus feel like the devil is crouching at your door, right? Don't let him in. Keep the door shut. And through all of these times and all these testing and all these trials, Look, what, what, don't miss it. In verse 6, he says, in all of this, you greatly rejoice. And James has said, consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters. And look down to verse 8. 
Because this, this was just crazy when I read it. Though you've not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with inexpressible and glorious joy. Do you see the exaggeratory language used there? It's inexpressible joy. The Christians that are going through all this stuff, that these Christians that are being persecuted, and the Christians that are about to be persecuted, they can hang on to the living hope, and because they have a living hope through the resurrection power of Jesus, because God is their shield and their defender, they can actually have joy in this life, and they can have joy in their hope and the living hope, and ultimately, we're going to have great joy in heaven. But it says, even now, inexpressible joy and gratitude. Gratitude, inexpressible joy. Consider it pure joy when you go through junk in your life. Why? Because we've got to keep our eyes on Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith. He is our living hope, and he can get us through anything. And I know some of you right now are like, I, I don't know if I can get through what I'm, what I'm going through. Jesus is our living hope. He will get you through anything. And some of you may say, you know, what is he going to get? What if it's a physical thing that comes up? I mean, what if I die? He will get you to heaven. He'll get you through anything. Well, what if this happens in this life? Or what, you know? Jesus is our living hope. As we go through this study, you're going to see it even more and more this crescendo throughout Peter's writing to the Christians in the early church. Put your hope in Jesus and nothing else. He is your living hope. And you need to put your faith and your trust in him. Allow these times of testing, these times of trials, to prove that you're really in the faith, that you're going to stand firm. Or as he says in 5.12, stand fast in it this faith that you have in Jesus Christ.